This episode is brought to you by E-Junkie. E-Junkie, the Breaking Bad-themed, no-muss, no-fuss shopping cart solution for the makers of the world. The makers who live in the world, not the people who make the world. Maybe you're an atheist. Now doesn't seem the time to go into it. E-Junkie helps you turn your passion project into an online business with their easy-to-use e-commerce tools that support both digital downloads and tangible goods. Like drugs. Plus, eJunkie has the best support staff in the industry. Start using their lightweight, embeddable shopping cart today. Go to eJunkie.com and start selling. Click that link. Enter the promo code WRITERS, W-R-I-T-E-R-S, to get your 30-day free trial. First 30 days are free. That's how they get you. eJunkie. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. By my reckoning, this is the 250th episode of the Writers' Panel. Um, so thanks. Thanks for listening to it. Thanks for indulging me by listening to it and writing reviews and telling me on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr who you guys want to see on it. That's always really cool. I, I, I'm glad people are out there and that people enjoy this thing that I made just because I wanted to hear these conversations. Um, unfortunately... This episode, the uh, sound quality is not exactly what I was hoping it would be. This is from a live panel that we did at 826LA here in Los Angeles. It's our first time at this venue, uh, and unfortunately, uh, we had some microphone problems and uh, some some problems with the writers not using the microphones. Uh, But we did the best we could to kind of boost the sound so you can hear the whole thing for sure, but there's unfortunately a sort of hiss throughout uh, I think it is still a really good conversation. I was thrilled to have this group of guests who will introduce themselves uh, on the podcast. As ever, thank you for listening. A lot of cool stuff coming up on the writers panel. Uh, live stuff, not live stuff. ATX Television Fest is around the corner. Stick with us, and thanks. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. them a round of applause. Today's panelists. I'm going to ask this question now, but first I'm going to have you, starting with Mike, come down the line and introduce yourselves. Tell us where the people might know you from, um, where they've seen your name in credits, that sort of thing. And uh, after that, once we are all introduced, I want to ask you guys what you are working on right now. What uh, what phase is it in, and sort of how did you get there? 
now I'm going to sit back for a little bit. All right. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, Mike Scully, um, the, the Simpsons, Parks and Rec, Raymond, the uh, Carmichael Show, and lots and lots of shitty shows. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Um, Kenya Barrett, I created Black Asian, co-created American Next Time Model, and... <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Groff, uh, I'm working on Blackish with Kenya, and for that I was at Happy Endings, co-running that with David Casp, who created it. <clears throat> I did a created a show called Andy Barker PI years ago with Conan, and I was on How I Met Your Mother for a couple of years, and late night with Conan O'Brien back in the day. Hi, I'm Lilla Zuckerman. I'm here with my sister and writing partner. Hey, how are you? I'm Nora. And um, <laughs> we have been on Suits, we've been on Fringe, and we spent a couple of years on a sci-fi show called Haven. Now we uh, are working on Pilot, yeah, let's, CBS. Let's, let's start with that. Uh, what are you guys working on right now? Where did it come from? What has the process been like? Well, right now we're at this like horrible stage where we haven't heard the fate of our pilot yet. So although many people will be hearing this in audio, you're physically here, you can sense the panic <laughs> rising from us right now. But um, so we'll know soon. So we're in this kind of frightening. Um, yeah, it is pilot for CBS. It's a one-hour kind of action procedural, and the really exciting part about it is that we are working with the MythBusters, and our show is actually based on Jamie and Adam, and they are the main characters of the show. They won't be played by the real-life Jamie and Adam. But our, our characters are based on Jamie and Adam and something that actually happened to them, which was a couple of years ago, they were approached by the government to consult on secret missions and special projects. And they actually did some work for the government. And so obviously we thought that this was an amazing television show premise. What if you got these two special effects masters Consulting for the government and using practical special effects in the field, in real life. Um, and what's wonderful is that we got to collaborate with Jamie and Adam, and everything that's in our pilot right now is plausible special effects that would actually work in the field. And we also got to draw upon their relationship. You know, they kind of have this really wonderful, dynamic, almost sibling-like relationship that I think is the real heart of this show. So it has been an amazing um, process, and we're excited. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> How did you guys get roped into this project? Um, we actually were up for it uh, as an assignment. We went in with uh, a bunch of other writers, probably that were sort of up for it, and we met with, with Adam and Jamie via Skype, and we basically just sort of pitched them what we thought the pilot would be, and, and you know, we, we sort of worked on it with them for a little while, and then our sort of parent producers broke up, and there was a divorce, and so it, the, the project was sort of put on hold for a little while, and by the time we were available again, the project was available again, so we were able to sort of circle back on it. So we've actually been involved in it for a while. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. And then, so, and it's interesting, I mean, when something like that happens, you kind of, as hard as it is to walk away, you walk away, but the, I imagine it's still stewing in your brains. Yeah. And then, you know, the amazing thing is that it came back. It, 
It was amazing, and the entire time that we didn't think this project was continuing, we were still watching Mythbusters episodes because we were such fans and saying, God damn it, that's, a, that's an episode right there, you know? So we had it rattling around in our brain. Uh, that's great. Well, good luck, you guys. You. By the Thank time you. this comes out, we will know the fate of the show. Yeah. I, I don't know. Let's say let's say it all worked out. It sounds great. I can't wait. I've never heard of a forty episode order before. Yeah. But congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kenya, I want to jump over to you and talk about what you are doing right now. Uh, I assume you are in the room every day on Blackish. Um, yes, Jonathan and I are. We're in the room every day on Blackish. Um, how, how deep in are you guys? We are pretty fucking deep in. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, episode 19 starting tomorrow. Oh, shoot. 19 of 24. So, oh, okay. But we don't really have an idea yet for 22, 23, or 24. <laughs> I'm be, uh, this year I'm directing my first episode. I'm, I'm directing my first episode. So it No was, kidding. Uh, I'm scared of that. <laughs> Which what episode is it going to be? Um, it's 23. We don't know what it's going to be about, but it's a, it's a, <laughs> uh, it out. Um, I have a pilot that I'm also you know, oh wow waiting on. Um, All right. Uh, and I uh, I'm finishing some movies. I I did a, the stupidest thing that you can do when you start getting any type of like. And people will start giving you stuff, and I was like, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, I didn't have, and I was chasing money, and I, and then I was like, oh, I have to write this. And it was, it's been the, for the last 18 months, like the craziest, leaving work, going to meet people after work, writing all weekend, running out to soccer games, coming back. Like, it has been, like, I would never do that again. What? Kenya also, he has five kids that he, oh my God, loves and spends time What are you doing? <laughs> I've never seen. I personally have never seen one person take on as much in a year in terms of work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you work so hard, right, to try to achieve anything or accomplish anything in this business, and you do want to say yes when the opportunities start coming in. What are these other projects? I mean, presumably, they're things you were excited about doing. They, yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, they are. I mean, uh, the pilot I'm really excited about. Um, I'm actually supervising and co-created it. A really talented writer, girl Tracy Oliver, is writing it. It's based on, um, it's for ABC. It's based on John Legend and Chrissy um, Teigen. Chrissy Teigen. Um, um, it's based on it's an interracial romantic comedy, um, based on their life. Uh, it's really exciting. The movies are. Um, I'm writing a movie called Cube in My Head, uh, about a, a white guy who bangs his head and wakes up with Cube's voice in his head, and that's kind of like. The, Wait a minute. <laughs> this movie come from? Um, it came from the idea of like my I'm doing it with my partner Alex Barno who's the VPs on Goldberg and he was like we're listening to Cube one day and he was like dude I wish I had Cube telling me what to do <laughs> and we kind of thought it was an interesting sort of idea so it's a, a one man buddy pick kind of in the realm of like, oh, oh god that type of thing and like a real for- friendship forms um, but something like that, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt you guys a whole lot because I want to dig deeper on some of this stuff, but something like that, you know, like a dummy like me would be talking to his friend about that and say, oh, that's a funny sketch. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes this a feature, and how did you guys, how did you guys even pitch this as a feature? You know, it's crazy, we sold it over the phone, and we sold it to multiple Who places. are you? <laughs> 
it was so crazy. We got them. Uh, we it was the weirdest thing. We had a really good. I we thought we had a really good pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, it was sort of like play it again, Sam. We got it. You know, what that type of thing. Um, we both were on staff. We felt like it was either going to sell or not sell. We had Cube attached, um, and they did a call with all the studios, and we all they all bought it, and we were very very lucky at the time. I think that's why it's. I look and I feel like it's why it took so much because you get quote unquote hot and people want to see it and at the time I had just done a movie I finished a movie Barbershop and I, um, I had done you know sold this movie Shot I had some movie in Good Times and then going, going on and so it was sort of like the momentum was there mm-hmm. and we felt like we had a good idea um, and it's some of the, one of the things for me as a sort of being green to this kind of success I'd had you know, some success with Tom Out on them, so like 19, 20 pilots, but something that sort of hit and had like a little bit of resonance to the audience and things like that. It was the mistake that I think I made was, whether it was a mistake or not, the, the thing was that I had not had it before and I felt like it was fleeting and I had a family and I didn't have a deal yet. Um, and so I was like, go for the money. Um, <laughs> and so we'll see what happens. But that was, and in some aspects, it has been a really good writing exercise. Mm-hmm. When you're pushed up against a a deadline and things like that. Sometimes you do your best work. Well, it sounds like you're working with great collaborators on all these projects, yes. which, I mean, that has to at least take some of the burden off. 100%. I'm, I love, you know what I'm saying, Jonathan and I, when we, you know, Larry Wilmore was, was my partner mm-hmm. when we started the show, and literally the day the pilot got picked up, <laughs> he, can, he calls me like, he's like, I'm on a, I was running another show, I've done a show for this kid, Dickie Simmons at BT, and he calls me out the room. And he's, um, he says, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah. He's like, so it's going to come out, but I just want to let you know. I have a show on Comedy Central that I picked up. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> like, why am I just out hearing with this? I've been with you the last 14 hours a day for the last three weeks, but I guess he had to keep it quiet or whatever. And, you know, we sort of had like a little bit of a, a, a tiff, you know, for a while. But um, Larry had said when we were talking about, you know, getting people on and the show I got picked up, we... Love Jonathan. Jonathan's a Jeffrey Grand Champ. He was like, his biggest, biggest, biggest great claim to fame. It, it, really, it is an important aspect. It is, it is true. It's an important aspect of, he was the guy when we were meeting with everyone who, from the pilot, took one small point, which was really the biggest aspect of the biggest conceit of the show, and understood what it was. You know, there was a point in the pilot, and someone went and saw the pilot, where a white kid came and was rum, rum, rummaging through Dre, who's um, Anthony Anderson's character, rummaging through the refrigerator. And he's like, uh, what are you looking for, Zach? And he's like, I was looking for a grape. So he's like, what makes you think I have it? You know, he's like, found it! And he actually had it. And Dre was like, oh, and it kind of was like the conceit of the show. It was like he's fighting against these things that are actually part of his life. And Jonathan got it. And we never had, you know, when Larry left, Jonathan agreed to sort of take over um, and guide the way. And we never had a meeting, never had a lunch. You know, it was, and we have honestly had such a, a smooth ride. I can't even, interesting. I w- and I want to pick up there with you, Jonathan, but, and I, remind me, I want to come back to some of the stuff you're talking about, which is that central premise of the show. Uh, but, Jonathan, you know, you, you've worked on a whole bunch of shows. You listen to some of the credits, things you've created, things you've worked on. How is Blackish different and how is it the same? Um, it's different. First, it's the first family show I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the first show I've done that's really about something a little bigger than just being hilarious all the time. 
I, I tried. I made a pilot, a, a short run of a thing called ended up being called the Jake Effect, that was kind of earnest. It was post 9/11 sort of story about like life's too short, so go out and do what you really want to do. So that I felt. I made seven episodes that never got on NBC years ago. Um, that was sort of resonant, but this one, in terms of where we are in the culture and just like we couldn't keep ahead or pace with the news last summer, especially when we were talking about this show and even stuff where we would be talking about an episode about do you spank your kids and not all of a sudden the Adrian Peterson story broke and like we're acting like we're responding to that, but in reality we were kind of ahead of that. And it's just week after week through what Kenya's trying to do and what the news is sort of almost saying we should do and, and needing to talk. It's like, it's just cool to kind of be part of the conversation in a different way than just being funny. Happy Endings was this wonderful experience in partnering with David Kasp, who was super talented, and those actors. That cast was insanely funny to me, but it was really, you know, it was, it was about stuff and life. Right. and But it really was about the jokes. It was kind of about the jokes yeah. and the, you know, and the just going for it. And this one is, we're proud of our jokes and we have the actors who can pull them off, but there's always something. We, read, we had a tape read this past week that was really pretty funny, and we all came back and, 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 and we were like, Kenny used the word, it was a little hollow. And like, it wasn't like what we can do. So we're not trying to get on a soapbox or be the voice of anything, but we are trying to be authentic and honest to what this family is experiencing. And that's really, you know, coming from late now with Conan O'Brien, it's a long journey from like, what's the weirdest, funniest, purest, most distilled, bizarre comic thing you can mine right now, all the way to this place where it's like, yeah, that's funny, but what are we really saying here? And that's that's a privilege in a half hour. I think, that, I think that's the thing, and, and Ken, you mentioned this, and I was going to bring it up, but I think you nailed it, Jonathan. That's, that's why the show is resonating. I mean, it's not just that it's a family show. It's not just that it's a black show. It's it's all of these things. It's about something, in addition to being really funny and warm. Um, That's hard to do. Well, I mean, thank you. And I, I think the thing that we were really fortunate for, you know, I think we're, I, I told Mike when I saw him, I was like, I'm a fan of He's like one of my favorite writers. But is getting a really group, get good group of writers together, you know, um, and when we were hiring people, we really said one of the things when we were talking to people was, are you willing to be honest in the room? You know, and are you willing to sort of emote and, and not worry about being politically correct or who you're going to offend? Like, you know, when a black guy rolls up next to you and he's playing, he's playing his music really loud, what are you thinking? You know what I'm saying? When you drive by two guys and they're making out, what are you thinking? Like, you know, like, really what's on your mind? And I think those are the some of the best stories that we come up with, and I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but some of the best stories we come up with come from conversations, you know, like um, we brought the spanking episode up. It was a really interesting sort of way that it came about is we looked on Wikipedia and Wikipedia had said that blacks spank their kids more than whites and we were like, where's that stat at? Like, who, who collected that stat, you know? And and we um, asked the room, like, how many of us have been spanked? And I think, say, there's 12 of us. I think 11 of the 12 of us raised our hands. And then we said, well, how many of us spank our kids? None of us raised our hands. And it was like, why? Like, do we think we're broken? You know, do we think we... And it wasn't that. And it was like the idea of, do we feel like we evolved out of it? Do we, you know, and it started a really interesting conversation, which then transferred, you know, related to the show. Yeah, that's really cool. And I want to pick up on some of that room stuff uh, later. But Mike, let's talk to you. Uh, yeah, I got spanked a lot. <laughs> Let's let's get into it. Yeah. I think this is representative. And my dad would have a black guy come over and do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the question? 
Can I turn my chair? <laughs> Make yourself comfortable. Um, let's, <laughs> awesome hair. Talk, talk, the podcast listeners are going to love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us what you are doing right now. Uh, you were telling me you are very busy these days. Uh, yeah, I'm working uh, three days a week on the Gerard Carmichael show for NBC uh, and uh, one day a week at The Simpsons, uh, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> well, I want to I talk about that for a second um, because we've had a number of Simpsons writers on. Can you just tell us again, like, how does that room work that a number of you guys can kind of go in a few days a week and, and kind of keep a hand in? Yeah, um, there's... Uh, Four, I, I do Tuesdays. <laughs> uh, Mike Reese does Wednesday. Uh, Gamble and Prost do Thursday. Dave Merkin does Friday. So, yeah, there's like one of us each day. And we just walk in, and because we've all been on the show a long time, we just kind of dive into whatever the staff is working on that day. It could be breaking a new story. Uh, it, you know, or it could be an episode that's almost finished that's in the final stages where we're screening and making final changes and changing some jokes and things like that. So we can just kind of dive into whatever the room is doing. And hopefully the advantage we provide is fresh eyes to whatever you know they may have been working on for a while, that we come in with a slightly different perspective, but hopefully don't pull it all apart. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, it's just a cash grab. <laughs> how, how big is the Simpsons room these days? Uh, it's about this size. Oh, people? Oh, uh, it's, uh, right now, the, the staff, we usually split into two rooms. There's about maybe 18 to 20. At its biggest, at one point, it was like 25 writers. There was one time where there was, at one point, it was like 19 or 20, but we all worked in one room, which was really insane. It was... How do you... They're literally, first of all, there weren't enough chairs. Yeah. So people, it was the only way to get writers to show up early for work because you wanted to get a chair. Like the last three people would wind up sitting on the floor. So, and it was just, uh, I can't say it was real uh, great for the process because there was just a lot of talking over each other and some people would give up and, and get frustrated. And then we eventually, around season 10, we finally said, hey, what if we would split into two rooms? How so does th it, that's the way it always is now. How does it grow to that size? Um, I don't know. I, it was just, <laughs> you know, bloated success. And, I guess if it was around know. seasons 8, 9, 10, then it makes sense. Yeah, I got there season 4, it. and it was, it was big. Yeah. The, the room was really big at that time. Uh, and I, I think also the showrunner, you know, it's, you have to kind of be able to, you know, you want to delegate and, and trust that there's another room kind of, you know, following your game plan, mm -hmm. that they're not spending the day, you know, going on, and, and you know, they want to make sure at the end of the day you're getting back what you want. Mm -hmm. So, but we finally figured out a system to do that. And the thing I'm curious is exactly what Kenya brought up, this idea of being honest in the room. Does this... No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. This isn't something we really talk to many Simpsons writers about, because we, always, we tend to focus on the jokes or the episodes we love, but when you guys are in the room, you know, so much of it, and I know it's like even episodes that you've written are drawn from your own experience. Does that become just a jumping off point, or do you have to invest emotionally? Uh, it, it depends on, uh, on the story. I mean, sometimes the stories are just you know, made up from scratch, you know, um, you know, obviously Homer went into outer space that hadn't happened to any of us. Uh, 
But like, you know, this, the episode where Bart got caught shoplifting, that was based on something that happened to me when I was 13 years old. And uh, emotionally, the big fear was, and that's what we played out in the show, is Bart's fear is, uh, is realizes when he sees Marge give up on him. And my fear was, if my mother found this out, she would be so devastated. Uh, so we kind of played out the what-ifs in the show, because in real life, the true story was my parents never found out. Uh, so, it, and the great thing is, for those of you that are writers, if you, anytime you're basing something on a true story, don't feel like... You know, you have to tell the true story beat for beat. You don't have to be a slave to that story. You still have to find out the most... <laughs> you don't have to be a paid worker to that story. Uh, you know, because it might not be the most entertaining version. Sometimes it's more interesting to explore what your fears are, like if that had really happened, if it played out the way you feared, that kind of thing. So it's a mix on The Simpsons. I remember one time... Uh, you know, we were short on stories, and I was giving the staff a speech about how we needed more, and and to really think hard about you know like stories out of their own lives and and stories from their childhoods. We were really short on stories for Bart and Lisa, and I said, think about your own childhoods, the things that happened to you, traumatizing, things, interesting. And uh, um, Ian Maxstone Graham raised his hand and says, I got one. Bart fires his butler. <laughs> 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 Uh, and what what is the and you're so you're in Carmichael show uh, four days a week right yeah um, and how's the room there how does it work you actually you were talking about this upstairs and I, I I'd like to bring it up if I may sure um, how much Jared is actually in the room and his role there as far as generating stories and his voice on the show that has his name on it. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know if you've seen you know, Gerard Carmichael's stand-up or if you've seen the show. Uh, you know, he's, very, uh, he's a very provocative comedian. He likes to really you know, get into issues. And uh, when I first saw the pilot, I really liked it a lot. It, it was, the scenes were long scenes, and they were having interesting conversations. And you know, usually in, on network television, they're always rushing you to get to the next scene. And, and uh, these were like 10-page, 12-page scenes of a family sitting around just, you know, talking and exploring issues, uh, but in a funny way. And uh, I really liked it a lot. So I went over and I met with Gerard and Danielle Sanchez, who was going to be the showrunner. And Gerard immediately started telling me what he wanted to do on the show. He goes, episode two, I want it to be about Ferguson. <laughs> so, all right. Because, you, know, <laughs> you know, knowing networks... Uh, I, I didn't think they would go for that. You know, they, a lot of times they think they want to explore these things until you actually go to do it. But to NBC's credit, and and maybe partially because of the fact that we were going to be on in the summer and no one was really paying attention, uh, we got to do these episodes. And uh, and I think uh, I think Black has kind of opened the door for us a little bit too. That. You know, you can have these conversations, and people, if they're done in an intelligent, honest way, you know, people are going to engage with the characters. So, uh, and we just did one. We just shot one Thursday night. That was uh, uh, Gerard has a, a chunk in his stand-up act called uh, "Talent Versus Morals," and it's basically like what's more important, and the idea of like 
you know, that like out of his act, he'll say, you know, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson's victims still listen to his music. <laughs> and says, in fact, they need his music more than we do. <laughs> because they've been through a lot. <laughs> but it's, you know, people that, you know, the, the people, like fallen heroes, people we put on pedestals who, you know, maybe disappoint us in some way. And can we still support their art? Can we separate the person from their art. So we did an episode the other night uh, where Gerard gets tickets to see Bill Cosby and he really wants to go uh, because Cosby is his idol and he, and you know, it's, this is really starting to feel like his farewell tour. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and, and it sets off a, a discussion with the whole family of can you still, you know, does, does the things that Bill Cosby is accused of doing uh, now, does that wipe out everything else? Can you no longer enjoy the Cosby show? Uh, it, does that wipe out the, the doors that he opened you know, for African-American actors? It is. So it's a great, interesting conversation, and, uh, and the audience really responded to it. And the network, you, you know, it started out when we first ran the area by them, they said no, because <laughs> it was just too, from a legal standpoint, I think they were worried. But to their credit, you know, they said, they let us, you know, Gerard and Danielle said, can you let us just write a draft and then make your decision after that? And they agreed to it, and Gerard and I wrote the draft, and then the room all took a pass on it, and they let us film it, and it'll be on in March, I think. Is there, that's great. Is there, and I, I, I and Cosby's guest star, which was really awesome. <laughs> Use the mic. Do you guys ever in those kind of situations? I know we do arguments happen in the room with different points of view. Oh, yeah. when you're at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's the great thing. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very diverse room, uh, in, like age-wise, racially, and life experience. So people come in with different points of view, which makes for a much more interesting conversation. I'm uh, the only one in the room. I'm 59. And I'm the same age as David Allen Greer's character in the show. Or he's 60 in the show, and I'll be 60 this year. Uh, so I kind of represent the, <laughs> the old man in the room. Uh, the old black man in the room. That's me. Uh, uh, but, you know, there's writers in their 20s, and people have different perspectives. You know, Gerard was coming in, you know... As a comedian, he's a giant fan of Bill Cosby, but it's also like what the Cosby Show meant to his family growing up, and you know, and you know, there's a thing, you know, in the show, he's, you know, he he made us, you know, feel like we could all, you know, go to college. You know, he says we didn't, but we felt like we could. <laughs> um, so those make for the most interesting conversations when you're going to explore an issue like this. Is to really get, like you're saying, Kenya, like everyone's honest opinions, not just. You know the the general opinion or the Twitter opinion, <laughs> the real honest opinions. And I had some that you know. There was a couple women that I wasn't sure about. Sure. <laughs> there was you know near the end you know after like several you know couple years had gone by and we were up to like victim fifty three fifty four like Jesus this took a long time <laughs> you know and you start to wonder you know like like. Like fifty-one wouldn't be a better number, I'd say, but, you know. But it's so. But we wanted to have those honest things, and and you know, and have those points of view of innocent till proven guilty, and and all that stuff come up. It's it's weird because I mean I asked that question because we often will 
bring up a topic. I know the gun issue came up and it was with the room, but on the Cosby thing, you know, one of the biggest sort of like, you know, nail-biting moments for me was I was drunk one night and I was reading Judd Apatow's tweets and I responded to what I thought was sort of an attack on, at the time. You know, I, and I still do feel like he was one of my idols and I, he, that show changed my life. And I have never gotten... I, you know, I didn't even know anyone was reading my tweets. It literally was just a drunk response, you know what I'm saying? But I really felt passionate about it. And, said, and it was, it caused a big, inter, you know, interesting conversation in the room. It caused an interesting conversation from the studio back. But it was, to that point, like, it felt like what should be a criminal situation in that aspect of if, if he did these things, it's a criminal, became a racial thing. You know, and I kind of feel like that was the reason that I responded to Judd because I feel like, there's so few positive black images, you know, that are put out there that when this man, who meant so much to so many people, took a fall, it, it, it became a racial issue. You know, I was, there's a joke, Dave Chappelle, I just went to go see him, I hope he doesn't get mad, but he had a great joke where he was saying, um, you know, Cosby was his hero. He was a black superhero in a sweater. Flying around saving millions of lives, just saving millions of lives. So imagine that a black superhero saving lives, but he also rapes. <laughs> but he saves a lot of lives, but he does rape. <laughs> and, and, and he was like, you know, that's kind of the thing that you think about. And so it was just this really interesting sort of, you know, duality between like those two topics. And we, you know, it was when they, when I heard you guys were taking it on, I was like, oh my god. And so also often that would be the kind of conversations we will. You know, the gun thing for us, like, it changed some of people's opinion. Like, if some people thought, like, I wouldn't have a gun. After the conversation, some people thought, like, maybe I will. Just I, That's why I said if you guys got into those arguments, because to me, those make the best stories. Yeah, yeah. It always does, because it always... you. I'll, the best thing to have in, in television, I think, is when somebody at home is watching and they somehow see their own... They see themselves reflected or their opinions or... You know their thoughts, so they know they're not alone in their thoughts, and and, uh, and I think that's what makes television such an engaging medium when you kind of when you can hit those things. And I'll, uh, I'll open this to all of you guys, but you know it, it raises an interesting question to me about where we are in TV right now and where we are headed. You know, it feels like we spent a long time, the past at least 10, 15 years, not talking about things in television. And all of a sudden, we get to do that very much in comedy, but really across the board. We get to explore complicated ideas and complicated issues. Do you guys do you have thoughts about where and why, just as people who have been in the business, people who contribute to the conversations about these complicated issues? It's really funny because we just came off of a show for two years on Suits where we totally don't talk about the issues. <laughs> um, it's really funny. Well, the USA way that, built but, a network on not talking about exactly. things, right? And and when we and when we come up with these stories, it's always of a place of conflict, conflict, conflict first. How do you get two lawyers that are on the same team in a fight with each other? You know, scene after scene after scene, and. Once we actually built that, we would find in the writing process that it would evolve to being something about trust or friendship. Um, but it's it, interestingly, that show has uh, a lot of popularity and a lot of relevance, and yet, and there's pop culture references. But I think that that show 
isn't really necessarily tackling big issues like Ferguson or, or, or Bill Cosby. It almost exists in its own little bubble of a world. And maybe that also is part of the reason that it's so popular, you know? Sure. That it, it is a fantasy, a, a beautiful um, fantasy where everybody is smart and everybody's in a fight and it's fine. <laughs> Where do you, I mean, you guys have all been in comedy for some time. Have you seen this sort of groundswell coming? Is this a recent thing because there are more options, so we sort of have to dig deeper? What, you know, what do you guys think? I think the networks, for some to some extent, I think that, that Mike hit it with NBC saying, you know, um, being kind of supportive of you guys generally doing. To, I have to say the same thing for ABC. They're, they. They fought us a little bit at the beginning on some things, but they kind of, like, especially our, our uh, we had to go back and forth a lot about the, the spanking episode, and they were worried about how close it was following up on some of the stuff in the news. That said, almost from that and since then, they've been a little bit more like, go for it. And when we wanted to do, we talked, we were kind of nervous, but talked around the idea and ended up doing it an episode about the n-word which was our season premiere and i know kenya who wrote it and did a great job with it was like i i hope we can do this and they were very much almost more than we were counting and bargaining for like oh yeah that's great do that do that and it's like and partly because we have been able to show that we could handle some things well but i think some of it is just necessity like while i still think that there's probably you know there's still once upon a time on abc which is escapist and that's always going to be the kind of thing that where usa has a slate of shows like that and there's always going to be market for that but another way maybe in the world of all of these cable and streaming shows that are getting challenging you know Paulie, to his credit, has given John Ridley two seasons of American Crime, and that's fantastic, you know? Like, and, and, and they've generally let us go for it, and, and you hear things like NBC doing that with Gerard, and right out of the gate, you guys were talking about stuff and trying to do stuff, and I think fresh off the boat in its own way on ABC, and um, so I think that there's almost a market-driven thing. I don't think they necessarily have an intellectual mandate of now we must do better and talk about stuff. It's more like maybe this will work because maybe there's a need for it. Or maybe it'll make a little dent. I'm a huge, like, I think that I'm derivative in a lot of ways of Norman Lear. Like, I'm such a huge fan of, you know, it's crazy that 30, 40 years ago he was talking about things that now we're sort of afraid to and we're supposed to have evolved and been in a much more open society. Um, and like we, we just did an episode recently, um, it's called Hope, but it's really, it's, it's sort of around the idea of, you know, I remember watching, I think it was where we were watching Ferguson, and my youngest son turned around, we were watching the, you know, the waiting for the indictment announcement, and he turned around and said, why are these people so mad? And it was that first moment where I had to, you have to have that conversation with your kids, and what do you tell them? You know, like, what do you say? You know, and one of the ways we kind of have built, and Jonathan's been really good at, like, making sure we do, is that... The show is generationally broke up, broken up. You know, Pops and Ruby, Lawrence and Jennifer's character have a different experience than Dre's character, than, than their kids. And then, you know, we're not, I think oftentimes minorities or certain groups are, are thought of oftentimes to be sort of monolithic in their point of view. We really built it in a way to show that we have a lot of different points of view. We are not the spokesman for the community or for, for the culture, but we try to give a lot of different points of view from the culture. Um, and to that, you know, when we did the N-word and when we do these things, and they tell us, you know, go and, you know, me being a black dude, I don't trust it. I'm always like, they're trying to fuck me up. <laughs> they're, they're setting me up. You know what I'm saying? Like, it always ends up being on my plate that I'm the one writing that. And um, 
but I do feel like it is there's a natural sort of fear because we haven't been talking about stuff for so long. Like I grew up, you know, loving, you know, I love The Simpsons and I love 30 Rock and I love Arrested, you know, the stuff that all the writers love. But those were shows that were really not necessarily, you know, Seinfeld in its, you know, thesis was about nothing. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I kind of feel like, you know, that, so it's a little bit of a leap. You know, that's why I referenced the fact that Jonathan, you know, you know, Jeffrey franchise, but it will very much so we have a really smart room mm -hmm. and they will pull very, you, can, you know, they will keep us honest. You know, we keep each other honest in the aspect of it is, a, you know, it's about being responsible a little bit because we are not trying, we try to not land on any one point of view being right, but it is sort of pulling the curtain back and starting a conversation. I think that's what, to what John's saying, or what we really are just trying to do, not really make a statement, but rather just start a conversation. I think there's something really smart about the construct of Blackish, and Carmichael has this too, and even The Simpsons has this, and a lot of the shows that you guys have worked on where built into the show are different points of view, are characters with different points of view. It's not Friends, where they're all 28 years old, right? There are different generations, there are different races, there are different orientations, whatever it is. So you're allowed to have those conversations when so much of writing is about point of view. Right? This is what we try to do, is enter someone else's point of view and make their lips move and words come out. I always give the example on Raymond of you literally, there could be a conversation happening and Robert could walk in and he, just hearing it would get the hugest laugh because he would be, the audience knew that character so well and what he would think in any moment. And that's just good character building and... You know that, that's so cool. Like when you can really just know what somebody's thinking. You kind of want to be ahead of things in comedy in a way, and know what is going on in the character's mind. Yeah, that that was part of the fun of that show. I mean, I got there season seven, so it, the show was very established, and the characters were very established. And, and it, it was like I remember writing the first draft of a script, and I turned it in. And it was like 45 pages, which was kind of average for a multicam script. And the others writers were like, like, they were like, how long do you think we have here? This is not a miniseries. And, uh, and I said, what do you mean? Then they showed me the other scripts, and they were like 34 pages. Just because of the audience laughter at when, a when the camera would go to, like, Robert without him even saying anything, but knowing what he was thinking while a conversation was happening and where his point of view would be coming from. Then he would do the line, then you got another laugh on top of that. So yeah, they had these just very short scripts with very long scenes, which were uh, a lot of fun to write. In many ways a throwback to like the 70s stuff that you guys were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I was in high school when All in the Family came on, and... Uh, Longest laugh in television history is when Sammy Davis Jr. kissed, kissed us. Archie, yeah. Archie, because you know exactly... Yeah. He's yeah. loving being having this celebrity. Those are the types of stats I get on there. <laughs> <laughs> it gets old. There, I want to talk about uh, characters. You guys have all worked on interesting shows with interesting characters, and there's nothing better to write than a character who has been well-drawn off the bat. Um, what characters for you guys, let's start here with Nora, have been particularly uh, fun to write or easy to write, and what have been particularly challenging to write for you? Well, I think with our most recent experience with Suits, um, the Lewis Litt character, if you guys are familiar with the show, is always the easiest story to break, the, the, the most fun to write, because he is, is such a bizarre person. 
to write, and and all those scenes are are basically they write themselves. Like you know, we you always say in the writers room, writes writes itself, but for him, sometimes it really did. And so he has always been like a, an awesome character to write. I think Jessica Pearson also on Suits is somebody who. If you if you're familiar with the show, her voice and her power is like always so awesome in every scene, and so she's somebody that I that I've really just enjoyed writing for a lot. Yeah, you you know when you're writing Jessica and you've nailed it when you can just hear Gina Torres ringing in your head and you're like, wow, that's I, I got it, and and I think because Rick Hoffman and Gina Torres bring so much in their performance that that makes them a lot easier to write. Jonathan. I love Rick Hoffman. Correct me up. Um, I would say the, the easiest character, the, the, these blackish characters, especially Pops and Ruby, their point of view is so strong. Dre is such got a so strong point of view, Anthony's character. Diane, the little girl, is this evil genius. That's pretty delightful to like not give her. It's hard not to give her <laughs> ten minutes of the show and every joke and every scene blow. Um, uh, and then um, I loved I loved writing Jane on Happy Endings. She was so wound up, and Eliza Cooper was so amazing. Hardest to write. One of the hardest characters. I was there in season three of, of How I Met Your Mother, and it was hard. They were still struggling to figure out what made Ted funny on that show, I'll be honest. Did they uh, figure it out? <laughs> I'll cut that out. <laughs> wow. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was there's so much oxygen taken up by uh, by Barney, by how by by you know, Patrick Harris's character and then you know, Jason Siegel is such a good comedian, and Allison Hannigan played well off of him, and the audience just loved her. So even if she didn't always like know like like a killer joke delivery, there was just something so appealing about their relationship. And then Kobe Smulders. So Ted was hard to figure out without making him annoying. Um, to his credit, like he had that great story. I mean, I think that was really the power of Craig and Carter. Um, uh, base and t- t- uh, Craig Thomas and Carter Bass as storytellers was that he had the engine of the story and it was his story and Josh was a really good actor so you felt the power of that narrative and that desire to find love and you believed that world um, even if sometimes he felt like he was you know the the participant, you know, sort of the bystander in some of the comedy. Yeah. But that was the struggle. But I think we got him. We, I, I was proud of a lot of the things we did with him. It's a lot of it was, you know, he was best when he was in a relationship or finding one. So we brought in Sarah Chalk at the end of season three as a love interest. It really sharpened him up, and he, he just nailed it. So yeah, That makes sense. Um, I think the hardest character, which in some ways is weird, um, is Dre on my show. Why? Uh, because he's the closest based around me, you know, he's, and I think that's always hard to sort of hear your voice back, you know, and, and Anthony's such a talented actor, um, but it's just, I think that sometimes I have a hard time with that voice, because you, he, a lot of times, is put in a position, and Anthony's such a generous guy, that he's, you know, giving everyone else layups, you know, assists for jokes, you know, and to sort of make sure you mind that comedy from him sometimes is, is difficult, because you don't want to hold back comedy from such a talented actor. Um, so that's, and I think by far the, the easiest character and my funnest character is Charlie, um, was this character Dion Cole played on the show. He was a really like, um, I call him like a left-handed actor. You know, he's one of those like everything sort of like offbeat, you know, you kind of like, you, you write the words, but he always, always says them a little bit different than you think and it's always better. Um, and you're sort of, 
trying to anticipate how he's going to say it, and it never quite lands, and you're always happier, you know, it's always, but it's, it was, um, that was probably the funnest and, and sort of happiest accident that ever happened. Was when, when you're writing Dre and you're trying to find that voice, you're trying to touch that thing, this is a deep process question, and, and you know, maybe, maybe there is no answer, but how do you eventually find it? Because you have to push through and write the character. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I will say that's good and bad about creating something around your life is that it gets too personal sometimes, but the staff, we all sort of have you know, raised that character together, and so you trust your staff, and you, you know, a lot of times you'll lean in and you'll say, I, I, I'm a little bit in the weeds on this one, and they'll, and they'll help you. Um, but I think the, the, the biggest thing for me is that I really, really, really... You know, early on, there was a, a, a conversation that the network had with us where they, they do testing early on and they do, you know, test the pilots. And they were like, you know, people are really afraid that you're going to tell too many stories about, like, race and culture and, and this and talk about stuff. They were like, we want you to just do more family stories. And it was the only time they ever had this conversation with us. And I was like, I don't want, that's not the show I wanted to do. And, I'll, you know, and I, it was the one moment that I felt like, Having that character of Dre, I wanted to have something that I felt like, you know, whether I win or lose, I kind of went out. If I got this far, I went out in my way. Um, and I wanted to see a character that was not pandering to everyone. I think that was the mistake that I made. I think I, I was like my 18th or 19th pilot, and I was trying to write them for everyone else. I wanted to see a character that was honest in terms of, He's a black guy, and, you know, and, and that was the thing with the Cosby Show that it, as amazing as a show as it was, it was about a show that I mean, our family could have been in, didn't have to be black. We wanted to do a show about a family that was absolutely black, and I didn't want to run from that. And I felt like that was honestly what we found was that the universality of the show was in the specificity. People found themselves in that character in the honesty of it, um, in a way that I think people weren't expecting. And I think when you're trying to appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one. You know, so we just tried to do it in an honest way. So that was just keeping that character honest, you know, and, and it actually makes me, it's cathartic for me in a lot of ways, too. Sure, sure, interesting. Mike? Yeah, uh, I mean, well, I mean, having written for you know, Homer Simpson and, and Ray Romano, um, Parks you know, and I, alone, yeah, I feel like. <laughs> you know, I, I've written for the, the dumbest man <laughs> on television and Homer Simpson. Uh, so. <laughs> now, um, They've all there's you know there's certain favorites on every show or one that you feel like you you get you know more than you like you know Homer's a blast to write because he can go anywhere and do anything and and be so like you know and Dan Castellaneta is such an amazing actor that emotionally he can make you really care about this guy so he's not just insane. Uh, not just insane. Not just insane. No, we've even like done stuff in the show deliberately because Dan is so good of like in one speech try to have Homer go through four or five different emotions all within one speech that within the context of that story where he's despondent and and angry and homicidal and then, you know, depressed and, and just let him go all all over the place, and that's a lot of fun to write. Uh, I have a soft spot for Lisa Simpson because I think she's kind of the heart of the show, and uh, and also I have five daughters, so I'm a, a sucker for Lisa and uh, Kenya. And I have five kids together, actually. <laughs> 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 
We were going to save that for the end of the panel. But I'll tell you. Um, you know, so that's fun. All right, Parks and Rec. Uh, writing Leslie Nope was so much fun because I was there in the beginning and we got to figure out the character together. In the first six episodes, we learned very quickly that uh, you didn't want to see everyone in the show shitting on Leslie Nope for trying to do the right thing. We, you know, we said, maybe that could be an admirable quality <laughs> <You know? laughs> instead of everyone making fun of her. Uh, and when we made that flip, because Amy Poehler is so likable and, and <clears throat> you know, um, it made a huge difference in the show and then we found comedy with her and then finding, you know, uh, like Ron Swanson and what Nick Offerman brought to that role and how they overlapped uh, things that the actor brings to the character that you didn't plan on. Um, Chris Pratt, you know, uh, kind of evolved into slightly Homer Simpson <laughs> a little bit. There were times that I was realized I was pitching lines. That's kind of a Homer joke. <laughs> every I got to say, every character, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Dre and we'll be like, okay, that's kind of a Homer moment. But everybody, yeah. I mean, he's the, he's the sort of mother's load source of so many male comic characters. How do you guys deal with those, those actors? I mean, you're, they, you didn't even name Aziz. Or, how do you deal with those characters becoming stars? You know, like in, in terms of they weren't there when they started. I think Amy was a star, but not as big as she is. How did you deal with her? Oh, yeah, it was, you know, it didn't spill over into the show. I mean, we, we watched where, like, Chris Pratt just, like, we never, you know, we weren't sitting in the, around the room going, oh, someday, you know, he's going to be the next Indiana Jones. <laughs> or, but now, apparently, that's happening. Um, that's the, the set of Parks and Rec was a very unique experience. I've been lucky. I've never worked on a a show that had a lot of dysfunction behind the scenes or actors locked in a dressing room or that kind of insanity that you would hear sometimes from your friends uh, on other shows. The park set was one of the, like the happiest sets to be on. And even as like we were into season four and five and, and they were all becoming much more uh, well-known and uh, had other things going on, yeah, and, but you wouldn't know it. You'd walk on the set, and if you, you know, gave uh, like pitched a, an extra joke to an actor during the scene, and it, like you know, they would come over after the scene was over, and Nick Offerman would be like, "Thank you, thank you very much for that joke. I appreciate that." <laughs> and there, and the 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 love on the show. It was not a mean spirited show, Parks and Rec. Uh, it was kind of show like even when it was wasn't. If there was an episode that wasn't particularly funny, there was something that you felt good about watching it, and I think it was the lack of mean-spirited comedy on the show, and uh, that was genuine affection uh, between the cast that just kind of came through. So we never, you know, to answer the question, we never really had to deal with it. Everyone made the show a priority and never made us feel like it was a chore for them to be there, regardless of what was happening in their career at the time. It's the character, you, uh, the sort of optimism, uh, that's always a really a fun, underrated trait to write comedy for is the sort of positive optimism of Leslie Nope. Or I like that on... Um, the, I did the show Andy Barker P.I. and Andy Richter had this like kind of just earnest decency that was sort of his superpower. And it was really fun to write that. And Amy was so amazing. And that was such a cool way to go. And I, uh, Penny on Happy Endings, Casey Wilson's character a little bit was that, where like no matter what happened to her, she was still like, this is going to be the year of Penny. And yeah. <laughs> kind of, it's, it's, you root for that character, but you can make them really funny because yeah. they have that kind of solid decency that like you laugh at when they're confronted with the 
the madness that is around them. Totally. I, I've always believed, and this is only my own belief, it's not a thing of the show, but I believe Homer hates Ned Flanders so much because somewhere deep, deep inside, he wishes he was Ned Flanders. <laughs> that he wishes he was as good as, as Ned and as patient as Ned and as loving as Ned. But because he knows he's never going to put the work in to be that kind of person, he's decided to just hate him instead. <laughs> so, and writing Carmichael now, it's really been... Uh, uh, been fun for me it just writing it, developing those characters uh, like we we have like a pretty solid handle on the parents on David Allen Greer and Loretta Devine and they're such good actors and we're actually still finding Gerard's character and Gerard will be the first to admit it. if you've ever seen the show we've never said what Gerard does for a living and the reason is Gerard doesn't want to say what he does because he's afraid once we say it it'll somehow the audience will picture him whatever the job is, sitting in an office or whatever he's supposed to be. So every time a writer turns in a draft of the show, we always there's always lines in there where the, Gerard will start talking and he'll just say, well, as a neurosurgeon, I feel that, uh, you know, or, as an astronaut, uh, you know, <laughs> so we joke a lot about it. We know eventually we're going to have to pick something, but we're still kind of figuring his character out, even though he is the center of the show. Uh, but that's kind of fun from a writing standpoint just to try things and see what works and what doesn't and and, uh, and what he's comfortable playing and uh, so we're still finding all that whereas like David Allen Greer's character we've kind of got a lock on him and that he has a a very strong code of you know that he lives by that like Supreme Court decisions he does whatever you know if they say it's okay he feels it's okay and uh, and in the Cosby Show he is very much of the innocent till proven guilty basically yeah you know, like the second he's proven guilty he's dead to him you know but until that time he feels that people should be treated with the way you would want to be treated in that situation you know, yeah so it's fun to write. I think it was. Uh, it wasn't until season four of Suits that we found out the Suits brothers actually sell suits, right? <laughs> surprising, surprising yeah. everyone. Um, it's a big twist on the show. <laughs> Do you guys have questions for this panel? Um, I was wondering how you stop a character who's like a breakout character from sort of devouring the show Fonzie style. That's a really good question, actually, because I think I think because. For all of us, if we do have our favorite characters, it is hard to not give half the episodes these. It's probably just because we're lazy. If if it's easy, we want to do it. But um, it is difficult. I think I think that it helps to have a showrunner with a strong hand who really cares about you know making sure all the characters get their due. But I think I think that's it, you know ultimately having one decider is helpful in that. But. Um, you know, I think it's it can be quality, not quantity. I think some of the best sort of supporting character stories we've done have been small, and and you just nail the right moments you need to do. Yeah, I mean, like The Simpsons, like started like the first two seasons was it was kind of the Bart show, and then it evolved into the Homer show, <laughs> and then over time we started to develop all the characters, and uh, not only in you know, like the family but in the town. Um, you know, getting you know great characters like like Mr. Burns or Krusty or Apu uh, and Mo, it just it opened up story wise just more and more things we could explore. The trick is to figure out a way to involve the Simpsons in everyone's story. Like if you're doing a, a Chief Wiggum episode, how do we get one of the Simpsons into that story? 
But yeah, the temptation, like they said, is always, and that, some, sometimes that comes from the network too. Like when one character starting to score, they just keep telling you, yeah, more. yeah go, yeah, yeah. yeah. more, more, more. Yeah. I, I, I want to hear about this from you guys. Whose <laughs> <laughs> character was Grimes? Grimey. My favorite. Oh yeah, Frank. Uh, I think that was a writer named Ron Hog. Ron Hoggy, I think, came up with that character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a, a, a character at the nuclear plant who came in and was kind of like spoke for like America. Like if you had to work with Homer Simpson, like how do you keep your job? And, and I, he wound up by the end of the episode, I believe he was in such a frenzy. Yeah, Homer <laughs> accidentally. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but but Kenny and Jonathan, can you guys like? I feel like I feel like uh, on Blackish. Every single one of these characters is begging to be a breakout character and go be spun off into something else. Yeah. <laughs> Are you feeling this from the network? Do you guys talk about this in the room, about balancing everyone so it really is an ensemble, which it continues to be? I mean, I think we've been lucky. They have, we haven't gotten any network pressure, really, to sort of like, she's killing it, step it up, or this or that. Occasionally... No, honestly, we try to be pretty balanced. You know, as a family show, you you know, I think we have a little bit more than I thought we would. Found Dre and Bo's relationship so interesting that we do a lot of stories where it really is stuff that they're hashing out, and we get the kids their own runner or their own story, sometimes together, or sometimes you know, two of them together, and then two others with with Ruby, the grandma, or whatever. Um, and that sometimes the network is like, we'd like to see them parent a little bit more. That's an occasional note we get, but not as much. Um, but we haven't really had that pressure, and I think... I think everybody is... The kids here. Everybody's holding their own so much that, um, you know, it has been not a thing of like, oh, go, you know, jokes need to flow to him or to her. You know, occasionally, like, yeah, it's easy to give Diane the last pithy joke at the end of every scene. And when Charlie, when we had Dion... It was hard not to give him 30 jokes in a scene because he's so funny. But we have so many other funny people in that office that... For me, I, I think um, the office was a surprise because not too often do you get a show... That was one of the things when you pitch. Like, it's like you either have to choose home or office. You know? And we've gotten really lucky that we have these guys who come in and they have the best shot in the world sometimes because they come into a scene and they just nail it. But it's we get to go and, and go to crazy town. You know, that's our crazy town place. And then we can come, prime, you know, ground the show at home. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm particular to, to, to Junior, you know, in terms of the kids, because I feel like I, I, see, I see my daughter and son in him so much. You know, that kid who's really just clinging on, you know. Um, and the character, actually, Marcus uh, Scribner, who plays him, is growing up. And he's like going to be tall and good looking. He's got like a, like a young Tom Selleck mustache coming. And we're not going to get so many of those, you know, goofy moments anymore. So, I mean, I think that that's one of the family, the fun things about a family show is we're all growing up together, you know, and those kids are like my kids. You know, I really do love them. And I'm, I'm, it's important to me that they are able to have a childhood. Um, and kind of like Mike said about, you know, that Parks and Rec set, like, our set, there's a lot of love there, you know, and I kind of feel like we go there and we do feel like we're creating a, a good enough environment where we feel like it's it's a place that it's okay to have kids around. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I mean, I feel like on both of those shows and on a lot of shows that all of you guys have worked on, you can feel that, mm -hmm. you know, you can. when, you can when there's it. a warmth to it. Yeah. Uh, all right, go ahead. This has, <laughs> you guys, people can't see, but this is probably the best looking group of writers that I've ever, this is like, 
guys were cast. <laughs> They're filming this somewhere. This is what we get on the right east side of town. That's too strong to uh, thanks for this honesty. Uh, we're wondering how we're here, right? So how did you get your break? Who gave you your break other than winning Jeopardy or shoplifting? How do you advise people to do this kind of work? Um, well, for, for Lil and I, I, you know, I had, I went to film school. I got an agent pretty early, but nothing really happened for a long time. And it's, it gets very frustrating. You're generating a lot of material, and there's a lot of people that want you to do work for free, and and it's it's really difficult. But um, when Lil and I started writing television together, our biggest break, and I recommend it to everybody who's aspiring comedy or drama, television writers, the Warner Brothers uh, workshop. And that was the probably single most important thing that we did. And it's a fantastic program. It's truly based on getting you in the business and, and, and getting you in a room and getting you in a good room. And... Uh, I, I recommend it to everybody to check it out. And they have a director's program now as well, actually. And just to plug the Warner Brothers workshop further, the most valuable thing that it did for us is it gave us a community of peers. So while we were staff writers together, we had other staff writers on other staffs that we would go out and get drinks together and tell war stories and support each other. We would read each other's pilots and give each other notes. We would we tip, still do. Actually. We still do. We would tip each other off about job openings, and to this day, um, years and years later, some of my best friends are friends that I met in the Warner Brothers program, and a lot of them are, are kicking ass and doing amazing work right now. So, if you can get into a program, I highly recommend it. Or just find your community, you know, because you'll all rise together, and and it's and it's it's hugely valuable. You know, don't be cutthroat. Be be friends with everybody. They are going to help you, and you're going to help them. You can also find someone to sleep with. But, yeah. I'm a big believer. <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in the, in the community thing. I started as a stand-up, and I came up with a lot of really funny people who I... And we started doing sketch comedy together, and from that, like... Every step of the way, I had help in my career from somebody who's like, oh, he'd be really funny. Are you looking for somebody? So, And I could name, like, Louis C.K. helped me get my job at Late Night with Conan O'Brien because Louis was a friend of mine from stand-up in Boston. And I know Louis C.K. But, like, there's a lot of people, like, that I started out with who did nice things, because, but they didn't do it to be nice. They did it because it's like, oh, you need somebody? This guy's nice, and he's funny, and he'll make make our jobs easier and let's get him in there and it really is kind of who you know but it's who you know who is inspired by you and you inspire who will sometimes speak up for you and help you get that first job that I said I repeated myself who who you inspire and and who is you you get my point and I'll say this uniquely for being black I think it's something I'll speak to and you know is our paths a little bit different sometimes because a lot of times it's about your crew you know, like the Warner Brothers program is about getting your crew. And a lot of times, like, you know, I'm sure Mike and John, like, they have people that they bring with you. You know what I'm saying? And they, you'll see. And a lot of times, I didn't have the resources of my crew. Were not, they weren't the people who were getting shows every year. So I kind of feel like my path, I did the programs, but my path was to get on as a PA. You know, get on as a writer's assistant. Like, you know, I honestly am trying to push for a program. Um, I did the writer trainee program. But I honestly think that's sometimes throwing, you know, sheep to wolves. You know, I honestly think that there should be a writer training program 
because I think that year or two experience of being in the room, knowing how to pitch, when to pitch, you know, the, the way to pitch is, you know, when you actually do get a seat at the table, you're much more prepared. And people actually begin to like you and know you and want to bring you on their projects. And, you know, you're, you're going to get asked to work for free. It's just knowing what the cutoff is, you know. It's knowing what the cutoff is and when you're getting used. But I kind of feel like if you get in a situation, you know, and people appreciate when you're a good PA. I am, and I was not a great one, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> People do appreciate when you, you know, you know, give them great notes. You know what I'm saying? When I, when I go off the script and my writer assistant gives me great notes, I love it. You know what I'm saying? And I remember them. So I kind of think if you can find a way to sort of find your crew and get in, you know, at a place where you're accepted, to me that's a really big thing in, in terms of, you know, the accessibility of being and having people's ear in a, in a real significant way. Yeah, and... Uh... Yeah, my experience was a, a little different in that um, I didn't go to college, uh, so I, I I went for like a half a day. <laughs> and, and I, I, and it was community college. My dad made me pay for it myself. And if you quit in the first 48 hours, you got your money back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like Springsteen was coming to town, and I, you know, anyhow, uh, these are important life decisions you make. So I, I kind of got a late start. Uh, like at 25, I just kind of had this epiphany. Like, what do I, you know, I got to do something with my life. And I moved out here from Massachusetts and um, started, I went to uh, Larry Edmonds Bookstore in Hollywood, bought a bunch of old TV scripts of shows that I like, studied them like textbooks, and kind of taught myself how to write scripts, you know, badly, but... I got there, and then it took like 11 spec scripts, and then finally I got an assignment. I also wrote jokes for uh, uh, Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov. Uh, <laughs> uh, did that for a while, and then he landed. He actually got a show that was on for a year called What a Country. Uh, so he got me onto that, and then you meet other people. But yeah, getting in a show, like they said, like PA or, or some a lot of shows, uh, not all shows, but a lot of shows have a writer's PA, which is not writer's assistant. But you're kind of taking care of the writers. You get the writers' lunch order, or maybe which is a nightmare. Which, yeah. <laughs> but if you if you're awesome at that job, people will start. To, you know, they'll take a liking to you, and, and this community is like it can be very nurturing. And you know, be awesome at the job you're hired for first. Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't you know? Come in the first day, shoving your spec scripts at people and your pilots, and uh, you know, um, you know. First, make sure the coke is cold and the fries. <laughs> put the coke. Here's a tip that you'll go far in Hollywood. You put the coke in the fridge the night before, so it's cold in the morning. So if you load the fridge in the morning, the coke's not cold like three o'clock, and I will fire you. <laughs> But if you put it in the night before, you're going to be a writer on my show. <laughs> so, yeah, do a, do a great job. And also, uh, Jonathan said something about nice and funny. That's hugely important. There's not a lot of jobs out there, and there's a lot of funny people. The ones that get eliminated first are the ones that are funny and not nice. You know, because you can usually replace them with someone who's funny and nice. <laughs> so we, if you finally you wind up in a room, you be respectful of other people's pitches. Listen to what they have to say. Don't step on them or cut them off or tell them why their idea sucks or yours is better. And don't just fight for your own stuff. Wait till you're a showrunner to do all this. Exactly. <laughs> with a nice cold Coke in your hand. <laughs> 
I think, and I think the important thing that we can, or an important thing that we can draw from what all of you guys said is, you know, from all of your stories, you did the work. Like, whether it was stand-up or writing specs or as a PA in terms of learning how things are done, you guys all did the work, and you wrote and wrote and wrote until you were ready to show something. It's, it's, it's interesting, you say, interesting you say that. I've done a lot of panels and talking to, like, new writers and young writers, and the thing that was different when we were coming up was the idea of writing originals now mm-hmm. is, like, standard. Yeah. You know, it used to be you wrote a spec of an, of an existing show. Did you write a spec of an existing show? Uh, absolutely. What did you write? I wrote, I wrote a Seinfeld. Um, I wrote a Just Shoot Me. I wrote, I wrote you know, 10, 11. I kept writing. That was what was your Seinfeld about? I'm uh, always curious about this. Thing. I totally remember. It was um, George was on a plane, and a guy who was sort of fancily dressed next to him, and he kind of was looking at him like maybe there was a, a spilled a... Um, Spilled a orange juice in his lap and basically molested him. Cleaning it up. And being George, being George um, Chief George, the guy offered to pay for it, and he had ended up sparking up a relationship with this guy. And it was like, "Are you dating this guy?" And so it was, that was um, but you know, it was the idea of like you wanted to be able to show you could emulate other people's voices, and that was what you are as a staff writer. You're writing for someone else. But now writers are told, you know, original, original, right, right when they're starting off. And I kind of feel like you write an original spec, and someone says they like your spec, you're like, well, this should be a show. You know, that's it's only you know it's counterintuitive to think the opposite. But you're not re- that's not ready to be a show. You know, and I kind of think it sends the wrong message to what Mike was saying. Like, you have to sort of. Be good at the job you're hired for first. But when you're, someone's telling you your original idea is ready to be a show, you're you're already jumping to the idea of being a showrunner. And I kind of feel like I have a lot of good friends who are getting, you know, earlier and earlier getting opportunities. And what they're not, what I want them to understand is that if you're not prepared, you'll get eaten up. If you're not ready to run your show and have the voice and you know be the boss, you'll get eaten up. So it's not about you know just getting there. It's you know I think that there's a little bit of I'm, I'm still a really big fan of specs. And I just kind of think that is putting in the work that you need to put in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, when you get hired, that's what the job is. I'm so glad to hear that. I think a giant mistake has been made in this business the last five to ten years. This thing about forcing writers to write pilots early in their career. A good pilot is really, really hard to write no matter how long you've been doing this. And... So to, when you're trying to write a script, at least if you're writing a, a, a spec script of an existing show, the, a lot of the hard work you know, has been done in terms of you know who the characters are, you know the tone of the show, and that's all showrunners are looking for is can you, you know, mimic what we were doing on this show and can you write that? And now it's all about pilots. So, like, now as a young writer, you have to also create a show. And the odds are, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's not going to work right. I would so much rather read spec scripts of existing shows where I know the character. I'd rather read, you know, a modern family or, or a blackish or, or, you know, or it's something where I know, like, oh, they nailed this show. This, I could picture this episode, you know, happening on that show or this character doing that. And I hope it swings back at some point. It's also when you're reading a lot of scripts, if you're hiring, it's like, wait, wait, now who's Terry that I met on page three? I have to never share this. Most like, oh, I know who Cameron is, and I know who Mitchell are. That helps me. Yeah. And that's what I'm hiring someone for is, you know, it's about... You know, that's what I'm hiring someone for is to help right. me. You know what I'm saying? That, I mean, I want to pay you, and I want to pay you well, but I need help. I need you to know these characters' voices and to emulate them and, 
it's amazing that you have your own voice, but be able to funnel whatever energy and that voice you have through the characters of the show you're going out to be hired for. The answer is probably you have to have both because some yeah. some so showrunners want to read an original and some want to read a spec, so yes. you need both. Yeah, I think and, I think that that ultimately having both, like mm-hmm. having a point of view and 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 having an original pilot, you know, I think it, it helps you know a writer. But if you didn't do the time and, and know the show that that you're specking, then yeah. And I think uh, very quickly for the like Warner Brothers program and those generally you submit a spec of an existing show, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and I think now um, the way that it works, there's there's a list they publish um, oh, earlier right. in the year yeah. that um, you know they don't. I don't think they want you to do a show that just started or you know just. Yeah. just no, it totally makes right. sense. And, um, all right, very quickly, let's get let's get these questions. I'm gonna hold this. You know, diversity is a real buzzword now. It's good and bad. Uh, But when you're writing, you all have all written on very diverse shows, which I think is really dope. But when you are writing for these characters that are not necessarily in your voice, and we've all been instructed to write what you know, uh, where do you draw from to write for a black woman whose experience you don't know? You know, especially as a black woman, I feel like a lot of white women are writing my voice. So I'm just curious. (laughs) No, thank you for that question, and I, I feel like at least on Suits, where we do have like powerful black woman and Jessica Pearson, she has such a distinct voice that we felt when we were coming in seasons four and five that we could really study this character, and and you know most of the work had already been done for us. And I think that's why it's so important that you have a staff that has different ages, you know, different backgrounds. Suits became a staff that was nearly 50-50, I think, in season five. And something amazing happened that I had never seen on another staff, which is we started pitching like, all right, so there's this new district attorney that is going to go after Mike Ross. And people just started talking about her, and and she is this, and she is that. She never got pitched as a, oh, we're going to bring a badass woman onto the show. Just out of nowhere, it was people were just saying she instead of he. And I'd never seen that on a staff before. And I was like, wow, I feel like I just witnessed a a tipping point. (laughs) Um, And so there there is something to this whole diversity, um, which I, I actually like to think is like normalizing more and diversifying, you know? Um, and, and so that was pretty amazing to watch. All right. Let's, uh, we're going to keep these quicker. So when you do decide to tackle kind of a current issue in your show, how do you distill the conversation from the writer's room down to the actual show's voice and tell a story around it? The question is about taking the complicated conversation that happens in the writer's room and then putting it into a 22-minute sitcom. I mean, speaking for myself, I think that I think uh, Mike and John, it's it's a it's character based. I think when you have characters, you know, like it's easy it becomes easier to tell stories when you develop those characters. If you know, if Larry David gets if someone cuts in front of him in line at the, at the yogurt shop, the story writes itself. Like you kind of understand what's going to happen because you know that character so well. And so I kind of think if you you know, as we're still in the, the sort of nascent, you know, levels of developing our characters, we're still building them. But I definitely feel like I'm starting to know what Dre would react, how Dre would react. I'm trying to know what Pops' opinion would be, um, and I think that's what we sort of 
how we sort of govern each other in the room is like, does that really sound like that? I think we're we're all we've all built the characters together, so we sort of know what the characters sound like and what their opinion would be, and it really helps in telling stories. Hi, um, when you're getting a character and building up it up to pitch for a pilot, um, how do you? How much do you put into that character to pitch it? Like, do you know like what's under their pillow by that stage? And then, how does that differ going on to like shooting? And once you get cast and everything like that, because you're always talking, oh, we're still building, we're still building. Seasons later, so yeah, I just wondered how much you need before. Well, I was going to say we just you know went through this really luxurious pitching process of having our characters be based on real people that we got to bring with us to our pitch so that was like really helpful and awesome and very helpful for studio executives to look and go oh this strange sort of buddy relationship between these two guys I'm actually witnessing it as they're correcting each other during the pitch and and so that was that was like a a huge luxury for us but you know we also created other characters within that pitch and I, I think the characters evolve as you write the script, and I think if, if we're lucky enough to go through casting, that it'll change again. I think you kind of have to lean into the skid sometimes in terms of what, what the actors are good at. I'm sure you guys in comedy, even more specifically, it's you know it's somebody's timing, it's somebody's voice, and, and I, I think you lean into that as opposed to trying to push against it because you'll never win. I'll give you an example. I, I came in on the pilot of Happy Endings that had already been sold, but we were just starting to cast it. And that was the perfect example of, like, I think David Cass, who wrote it, and he wrote a really good pilot, but really the only really the only two characters that he had a handle on, maybe three, were Penny, um, which Casey Wilson ended up playing, Max, um, the sort of straight-acting gay guy, uh, and then, um, to some extent, Jane, the character that Eliza Coop played. Everybody else was really in flux. Like, the idea that Elijah, uh, Alicia Cuthbert's character was kind of dumb and spacey was... Literally, like we're talking about this. How? What are we going to do with her in the second episode? Zach Knighton's character is very much informed by him as an actor, and even Casey's character, like the Penny, sort of terminally single woman. We saw a lot of actors who kind of played it hard and and a little bit bitter. And one of the things that Casey brought to it was this kind of optimism and sweetness and eternal. Like this is going to be that. This is going to be the one. And um, that changed the sort of way that we developed the character further. And I think. If you can get, I mean, there are pilots that I watch that are astonishing because everybody is fully birthed there in the beginning, and you go like, "Well, that's the best pilot." And, and you know, there are some that are that's amazing, you know, where you really know that character from the pilot. Um, Modern Family did that, I think, and I think Raymond did that, and I think uh, I think Friends kind of did that, but not every single show knows that right away. I think. Um, and some of the best shows, I think, take a little time to figure those. I think Kenya had a high batting average in terms of you really had a handle on Dre and Bo and Pops and Junior. But Diane took, you know, Diane was this cute actress, but then we said, oh, she can be funny if she has a little bit of an edge. And that was something that came quickly in the first couple episodes. But So it's a, it's a kind of evolution. You write to the actor, you write to what you need, and you kind of go like, now we have to develop a character the rubber meets the road this character needs to be in stories what's his or her attitude uh, what appeals to you specifically about writing for television it gets made <laughs> you can write something and it will be shot and it will be put on television and I don't think you can say the same with with really any other medium it's amazing 
and several times a year, something you write gets put on TV. And I, what I like about it is that there's kind of like a, a circadian rhythm to like this season where you get in the room and everybody's happy to see each other and you're all riffing off of each other. And right as the moment you're about to kill everybody in that room, you go off alone and you write a script. <laughs> and you're alone or with your sister writing a script and you're so glad not to be in that room anymore. And then right at the moment that you're about to go crazy because you've been alone in your office writing the script and you can't take any more notes and you haven't seen anybody else, you get on a plane and you go to set. And now you're so excited to be around all of these actors and, and you are working with directors and you're seeing everything come to life and you're not sleeping. And right when you are so exhausted and you haven't slept in two weeks and you miss everybody so, so much, you fly back to Los Angeles and you're back in the room and you're like, oh my God, I missed you guys so much. And that's the rhythm of working in television. It's, you get the best of all worlds. I also think the continuity of character, just being able to tell stories that aren't just a feature length sort of in terms of what the character can go and the smaller moves that you can make week in and week out with characters and um, they don't change that much over the course of an episode or the course of a season or a series really, which is kind of fun to live with people for a long time and really explore all the small stuff that makes them interesting. And I also think that the nature of the amount of control that you have as a television writer compared to other mm -hmm. mediums. I, I think that we, you know, from concept to creation, you really do mold the words, the characters, the, the way it's shot, the way it's edited, to, you know, you're actually putting it on air as your creation. You know, in other mediums, you kind of get taken out of that process. Good answers. Let's get through these real quick. I know you guys are, are were promised to be out 15 minutes ago. Um, what are some uh, of your best tips for really killing your pitch when you're in the room? We haven't even talked about pitching. You guys, this is a whole other panel, but very say, quickly. Have a partner that you can hand off. Half of <laughs> yeah, uh, for, uh, for me, it's, it's keeping it short, you know, tight, concise, but be prepared to answer questions afterward. Uh, how short is short? Uh, like 15, 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, because you, you can kind of see in their faces, you know, whether they're responding or not. And sometimes you see, like, you know, literally, like, you can tell sometimes, like, a minute and a half in, there's no way they're buying this thing. And, <laughs> and I know I've still got, you know, 20 minutes of <laughs> shit to go through. And, I'm not going to play on this plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you just get to the, you know, point fast and, and see. And then, if because if they're into it, then they're going to ask you questions, to, and So be prepared to expand on it and have some story idea, like, other stories that could, could be done. Not just a pilot story, but where... Where can this show go? What's episode five? Those are, but don't throw that all into your pitch. Uh, just you give them what the show is about, where the fun is, uh, you know, the potential breakout character, you know, the stuff that they're always going to be looking for, and and where Tony Danza fits in. <laughs> Mandatory. Yeah. I also like to just have a little thing at the top when you're starting to pitch, like kind of addresses the why now, sort of like something in the zeitgeist that makes you feel like this show should be, this story needs to be told right now, whether it's like 
people are waiting longer to have kids. And there's an interesting story in looking at a couple that is really pushing 40 now and not having kids. And so let's, and, and then you maybe have a little bit of research or an anecdote that supports that. And that kind of makes executives are always looking for a reason to, why should I buy this? Or what does this speak to in the culture? I think you probably have that with yeah, when you and I, pitch Blackish. And I even, you know, I think uh, Mike and Jonathan brought it up. If you can have talent in the room, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that there's such... I'm a comedy nerd. Like, I love going to comedy clubs. And a lot of times, those com- comics who just kill, you might not think of it, but they don't have anyone that's saying, oh, my God, you just killed. Do you have a show I do? If you can honestly go in the room with your talent and have them, you know... You know, for us, it was Anthony and Lawrence. You know, they acted out that Pops and Dre relationship, and I've done other stuff. It just... It's half the fight is, you know, is won yeah. at that point. When, when you have, like, very, like, well-defined characters throughout your shows that can influence the tone in very different ways, how do you balance the tone and make it cohesive without losing its complexity or nuance? Whoa. <laughs> Take this. Go sit down. <laughs> let, me, let me put that in a more a simple way, I think. Uh, how do you, as a showrunner, maintain a strong authorial voice? Or do you... Well, coming off Suits, which I think is probably like a highly consistent show in terms of voice, our showrunner did a pass on every script, and a thorough pass on, on every script. Um, and I think that it shows that I think our episodes are, are highly consistent. And he puts in the work. Yeah. <laughs> Last question. Uh, you came up in the business and um, you like broke through in the industry Uh, okay I have a question okay so would you rather like now just in your opinion do you think it would be better to do it that way to like PA or uh, pay your dues and somehow work your way up where you're able to pitch something in the room or would you rather like kind of build a following build your crew and start independently and do it yourself just in today's times like how would you because there are so many opportunities now to kind of build your own thing yeah that makes sense there's no reason I don't think that you can, if you're, if you're young and hardworking, that you can, can't do both, or not even young, just hardworking, do both at the same time where you're like, maybe you get that job on a show and meet some people and learn how a show works and make some relationships that way, but meanwhile you're also doing your YouTube stuff or trying to get something on Funny or Die in the case of comedy stuff or putting on a sketch show somewhere that you're writing and directing. And it takes, you know, you should be working or thinking about work 18 hours a day. Yeah, honestly. I think... I think- I think a lot of times if you are PA on a show, there's a tendency for some assistants to, like, wait in a line. Sort of like, I'm going to wait for my shot. I'm going to wait for my shot. Like, don't, don't be that kind of an assistant if you're on the show. Always be generating your own work. And, you know, when somebody asks you, let me read your stuff, you'll, you know, you'll have it ready. But you should be out there. You should be applying to the programs. You should be making, you know, making your own stuff, posting it on YouTube. I mean, there's so many opportunities now that weren't available, like, when I got out of film school. And I think, um, but you can't just wait in line. You can't wait for your spot. And write. Like, writers write. write. I mean, I think that that is something that's sort of been a little bit forgotten because there are so many other opportunities. People forget. But, you know, write. Like, every, every script you get better. Not to say that every script is better, but every script you get better. And I kind of do feel like that is evident when you actually get your time turn to step up and take a swing you'll connect with the ball a little bit harder 
and Twitter's become a, a great, oh, yeah. you know, for just for joke writing practice, you know, I mean, to learn how to tell a joke in a concise manner. I think, like, being limited to the 140 characters is great training for comedy writing. Because when I started doing it, I would go down, like, like to open mic nights, uh, like in the 80s, and I would write what I thought was a very, you know, tight joke. And you get up on stage and you're saying it, and it's fucking interminable. <laughs> I mean, you can see in the audience's face, and it really, you go home, and then you, like, realize how many words are unnecessary in the joke and how to streamline it and get to it faster. And Twitter is great at that. I know a couple of writers who have been hired strictly off their Twitter feed, and it's the exception to the rule. I don't want to send everybody like running that way, but as I mean, I still I put you know I write jokes for Twitter uh, to kind of keep my chops up, and uh, you know, and it, it's not always my favorite thing to do. Sometimes you come home from like an eighteen-hour day, like oh shit, I forgot to write my free jokes for America. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I'll kind of force myself to sit down and and, and uh, just because it's just you know try to you know stay fresh and current and uh, and 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 show that you can you know still do it. Uh, so that's also great training just for on the joke writing side. But I think Kenya's saying like write. You got to write stuff. You know you got to be able to tell a story and and uh, you know that's that's what it's all about. Once you get the opportunity to get in on a show. So and on the pitch question, was anybody worried about animated shows? Or uh, we're all worried about animated shows. I, well, no, if you go in, if you go in to pitch an animated show, if you have, it's incredibly helpful to have designs of the character so they can picture it because you can't really tell them like oh I you know I think you know so and so would play this role like they can't so you can't do that so it's if you have a picture where they can kind of like look at the characters and, and see the look of the show that might kind of spark them because suddenly they picture it in an ad, like you know on a billboard or an ad and do the characters make you smile when you look at them that's it's just in the animation world I've seen that happen a lot where they just want to see what it looks like and lastly I'll say this I think that that I have learned is that we all have like our own story you know and finding out I, I sold my story six times I'm saying literally it was a, you, know, you know six different versions of the story but like finding like that really authentic part of like what your story is and what makes you unique and like everyone does and I kind of think that those are the first ones that if we can get those if you can get those going you can tell that's why they love them to be based on your life because you have so many versions of that you can tell a hundred episodes and I think that's something that you know with all the streaming and the cable and stuff right now the more authentic and the more honest you can be with your story even if it's a wild story I think that you know the more better well more well more well received it will be that's great advice. Uh, very quickly, starting here with Nora and going down the line, tell us what you are watching on television these days. What are you excited about? What is your room talking about? What is your partner talking about? Whatever you like. Um, I think my husband and I were talking about this recently, and I think our favorite show right now is The Nick. You guys, anyone watch The Nick? I think it's so well done. It's it's sort of the perfect balance of like art and soap and... And, you know, just learning something about a period you never thought you would know before. And, and I think S Steven Soderbergh and the way he works with the writers and the way that it's shot is just amazing. So that may be, it's still fresh on my, in my mind because we just watched the finale a couple weeks ago, which is like 
the craziest thing, probably. Like, it's it's insane. It makes the, the Revenant bear attack look like not a big deal. Um, but yeah, everybody watch The Nick. That's the thing I love right now. The two shows that I am telling everybody to watch right now, I just binge-watched Jessica Jones. Yes! Oh my god, so obsessed, loved it, I thought it was perfection. And then my other favorite show is Ash vs. Evil Dead. It's amazing. It has managed to thread the needle in terms of ultra-violence and hilarity. Has to be seen to be believed. It's terrific. Um, my wife and I watched this weird show, Peaky Blinders, on Netflix, which was cool. Um, we got we hung around for Homeland, and even though there were a couple of rough seasons, the last season was really good. And I think I'm still I have to go home tonight and watch Downton Abbey, <laughs> just to keep my marriage together. Um, my show is Veep. Yeah. Um, I think it's you know just unbelievable, and then, like my sort of offbeat show. Um, my wife sucked her, suckered me in, and now we just can't. Like, I got into, but like, making of a murderer. Um, like, I'm really getting into sort of those docutainment sort of whatever shows. Uh, am I the only one that watches network television? <laughs> 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 yeah, I uh, I actually like like the Wednesday night comedies on ABC. I, I think the whole lineup is solid, and it's nice to for me. It's a, a it, you know, there's not a lot of networks that have like a solid night anymore, and I think ABC has that on Wednesday night. Uh, I uh, my wife and I are fans of The Grinder. We think it's a a funny show with a title that's severely misunderstood by America. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, came, like, we're like uh, Walking Dead and Game of Thrones and uh, uh, a BBC show called Miranda that is super broad, physical, silly comedy with an actress named Miranda She's Hart. She's hilarious. She's in Spy. Makes me laugh. Yes. She's yeah. great. We laugh so hard. She was also we, in that uh, Midwife. Call the Midwife. My wife loves that show. We were watching that last night, actually. Uh, and there's no worse feeling in the world that cause my wife and I watch a lot of TV together because our kids are all grown now and gone. Uh, but then realizing, uh, like, your wife has been asleep for 20 minutes. And you- <laughs> And you've been watching Real Housewives all by yourself. <laughs> so we do watch that, too. So. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Please give yourselves a round of applause. Thanks to everyone here at 826 LA. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Sarah. She has tickets for sale if you want to come do it. Now leaving Nerdist.com.